U.S. intelligence agencies foiled a plot to assassinate former Vice President Joe Biden. A new Ariana Grande music video with a possible dig at Pete Davidson? Yes, please. And we've got you covered on all things debate. We're joined by BuzzFeed News' Sarah Mims and Paul McLeod to talk all about it. The date, October 23rd, 2020. The time, News O'Clock. Hello, friends. I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Casey, I just want to let you know really quickly that um, if I pause or hesitate at all during this taping, it's because uh, our dog is right next to me and demanding <gasps> pets. Uh, and so I, I'm just letting you know that it's his fault if I falter at all while we're talking. Are you giving him lovely tummy scratches like he deserves, like the good boy he is? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> he is being very great, very kind, sitting in a sunbeam right next to me, and uh, everything is golden right now. <laughs> um, Yesterday, my roommate's cat made us follow her to the sunlight beam. So she could get scratches right there. So I love this. I love this for all animals. <laughs> yes. He knows what he's about, man. And you know what? I'm here to provide. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It is time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. The FBI has been busy this summer and fall. It now says it has foiled an assassination plot against former Vice President Joe Biden. 19-year-old Alexander Hillel Treisman had been designing this plan since as early as March, according to authorities, and was arrested in May after bank tellers in Kannapolis, North Carolina, became suspicious of a white van in their parking lot. What police found in that van was, well, not great. I'm going to go ahead and put that out there. It's not great. According to a court document filed in federal court, those concerned employees called Kannapolis PD, and when they arrived, the document says they found the van was full of guns and explosives visible through the front windshield. Treisman was initially arrested on a state charge of carrying a concealed weapon, but has since been charged with federal child pornography crimes. Treisman has been charged and held for the child pornography charges, but he has not yet been charged for the attempted plot against the former vice president. This failed attempt also comes as Ivan Hunter, a member of the far-right Boogaloo Boys, has been charged on the federal level with shooting up Minneapolis's third police precinct, which he also allegedly set on fire during the unrest in Minneapolis this summer. Meanwhile, wildfires have been tearing up the West Coast, and Colorado's fires are shaping up to be some of the worst in their history. Families were forced to evacuate after the East Troublesome Fire had been encroaching on neighborhoods in Grand County, and the stats from this fire are just mind-boggling. The so-called East Troublesome Fire exploding, at times erupting at a rate of 6,000 acres an hour. That's nearly 80 football fields per minute. The winds were strong. The fire behavior was strong. It was a challenging day. Shutting down Rocky Mountain National Park, forcing thousands to flee. Colorado's fires are part of a worrisome trend. According to a report from the New York Times, lightning strikes are an increasingly common cause of the blazes, and climate change could be a big reason why, since it causes more of the land to dry out. While they only account for 44% of wildfires in the West, they're responsible for 71% of the area burned between 1992 and 2015. And, oh geez, this story. Finally, Sasha Baron Cohen's latest film, the sequel to his hit Borat, hit Amazon Prime on Friday. But the hubbub surrounding it has mostly involved a spat with him and Trump's personal lawyer, former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. So let's break this whole thing down. In one scene of the film, Borat's 15-year-old daughter, Tutar, played by 24-year-old actress Maria Bakalova, important to point that out, 
is impersonating a reporter and is interviewing Giuliani in a hotel suite, where she later asks him if they can move the conversation to the bedroom. Once there, Tutar helps Giuliani remove his microphone. After the mic is removed, while lying on the bed, Giuliani slips his hand down his pants. And it looks like Rudolph W. Giuliani is in, well, a compromising position, let's say. Borat then comes into the room, and the scene devolves into the two men yelling at each other. Giuliani was pissed, claiming that he was simply tucking in his shirt, and fired off a tweet thread that said, quote, The Borat video is a complete fabrication, and at no time before, during, or after the interview was I ever inappropriate. If Sasha Baron Cohen implies otherwise, he is a stone-cold liar. Before Thursday night's presidential debate, Cohen, acting as Borat, tweeted a video of support, if it can be called that, for Giuliani. Yag Shamash, I here to defend America's mayor, Rudolph Giuliani. What was an innocent, sexy time encounter between a consenting man and my 15-year-old daughter have been turned into something disgusting by fake news media? I warn you, anyone else try this and Rudolph will not hesitate to reach into his legal briefs and whip out his subpoenas. Yeah, all I'm going to say is if you go to Twitter.com, you can see how everyone's feeling about this. It feels like there's a divide about if someone needs to be lying down on a bed to tuck in their shirt. I I don't know. I never tuck in my shirts. (laughs) Just anti-shirt tucking. Like, I I wouldn't know. Never done it myself. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, I don't know. Giuliani's an elderly man. He, he got limited range of motion. It's a, it's a, I, I'm glad that no one can see the motion that I'm doing right now. Uh, this is, yes. And that this is audio Incriminating, only. to say the least. Um, right. Um, I, I have to point out, just to be true to myself, that I was not a fan of the Borat movie when it came out. I loved the Borat sketches on the Ali G show back in the day, but I felt like the movie was too focused on let's laugh at this funny foreigner versus, wow, the U.S. is trash, isn't it? Let's expose this through this funny foreigner. Yeah, I I feel as if it had come out now, we might have gotten the humor, but when it originally came out, we weren't society was not collectively smart enough to understand that. Also, the only thing they were smart enough to do, and it was actually not smart, was pick up on all of the quotes that then everyone said for the rest of their lives. (laughs) Exactly. Just funny foreigner. None of the stuff about like how the U.S. is trash. Just stuff about mm, accent comedy. Right, exactly. Really original. Um, Okay, wait, I do want to go back and talk about Ivan Hunter from the Boogaloo Boys who was arrested because this was all about when the when the shooting and fire started at the Minneapolis's third police precinct. It was assumed that protesters had done it and they were adamant that they hadn't. And now this is, you know, finally proof that they did not. Right. I mean, it's the same situation that we saw with the dude in black who broke windows at an auto zone. I was like, that dude is far right. He's not with us. And after a while, it turned out to be, yeah, true. Absolutely. The fact is that there are people on the far right who are who are interested, like the Boogaloo is, in starting basically a, a race war, like Charles Manson's followers with their Helter Skelter shit back in the day. And to do so, they are willing and extremely, extremely willing to pretend to be left-wing protesters and start shit, start have violence, start fires. In one case, uh, Hunter was in communication like the same night of this fire in Minneapolis with the dude, the dude in California who shot a federal officer. 
officer that was blamed on protesters. It's all connected, and uh, it's terrifying that, yes, it all sounds silly and weird and conspiracy-ish, but they also are an actual network. They have connections. They talk to each other, and they're heavily armed, so great. Well, not great. No, 0% (laughs) great. Okay, Casey, uh, can you please pull us back into Friday land with what's going on in pop culture? No, I can. All right, so Hayes, a simple question. What would you do for $14.5 million? Nothing I would commit to tape, Casey, but thank you for asking. (laughs) I will be asking off tape and then I'll tweet it. Okay, anyways, if we're all being honest like Hayes is uh, with ourselves, that answer is probably kind of dark and a little depressing, but Matthew McConaughey has a very different answer. That's how much money he reportedly turned down to start in a single rom-com back when he was the genre's king. McConaughey made the revelation in his new memoir, Green Lights. This was back before the so-called reconnaissance, and he had starred in a string of hits like The Wedding Planner and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. He writes that he, quote, enjoyed making romantic comedies and their paychecks rented the houses on the beach I ran shirtless on. But at the time, these were the only offers he had coming in and he knew he could do more. He says he decided to bet on himself and turn down the offer, adding, quote, if I couldn't do what I wanted, I wasn't going to do what I didn't, no matter the price. And uh, clearly one Oscar later, that decision worked out for him. Yeah, right. But I mean, I got to say $14.5 million is a lot for one role, especially for a rom-com. Like, that's a lot of money on the table. How is, I can't imagine being offered that. I wouldn't say especially for a rom-com. That checks out. For rom-com, you're pulling in tons of people to the theater. Remember theaters, Hayes? Hmm. Delightful. I'm just saying that I can't understand like being offered that sum of money and my answer not being all right, all right, all right. Hayes, you have to leave now. <laughs> you know the rules. You know the rules. You have to leave. You have to exit. <laughs> all right, I'll be going, but I'm going to take uh, my Matthew McConaughey impersonation with me. It's great. And uh, we're going to be hanging out at the beach later. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm moving on. (laughs) So Ariana Grande is out with new music. She dropped the video for her new single, Positions, just after the debate. And it appropriately features the singer as president walking around the West Wing, as well as filling in all the other positions in the White House, from press secretary to chef. Because this is Ariana, fans have been looking for hidden messages about her exes, and they think they found one aimed at Pete Davidson. Okay, Hayes, did you hear that? The emphasis on Pete in repeat. (laughs) Do we think this is a stretch? I think this is a stretch. Yes, me too. Me too. I can't say that. I I get the feeling that when Ariana wants to shit talk her exes, she's a little bit more direct than than a rhyme like that. I was going to say that in in the one we saw where she had the burn book from Mean Girls, each page. You mean thank you next? Yes. Yes, It was about each of her exes. Like she's very blatant. She said their names. (laughs) Right. And um, on that same album, I I know this because my fiance is an Ariana Grande stan. In one of the songs, she specifically calls out uh, a, a nameless 
boy who she had a vision of in her head, but it wasn't real. A dude who loved his sneakers, which Pete Davidson fam- famously does. So if she wanted to, like, call him out, she would have been a bit more direct, I think. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. <laughs> the video was great. I loved it. The aesthetic was glorious. Yeah, she, she's a very fashionable president. <laughs> Super fashionable. (laughs) Loved it. Uh, Yeah. A plus all around, Ariana. Good job. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. When we come back, we've got BuzzFeed News politics expert Sarah Mims and Paul McLeod with us to talk all about the final presidential debate. Stay right there. Chief it. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia, Kidding, and Asia. This is The Professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. The first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was, as CNN's Dana Bash put it, a shit show. But Thursday night, we got a more sedated debate where the candidates had uninterrupted moments to explain their plans for the future of our country. To hash out what happened, we're joined by BuzzFeed News' DC editor, Sarah Mims, and congressional correspondent, Paul McLeod. Good afternoon. Hey, guys. Hi, good afternoon. So I'm curious for both of you, what were your biggest takeaways from both candidates from this debate? Oh, man. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was like, there's so much talk today of like, well, Trump wasn't full crazy. So I guess that's good for him. (laughs) But like the only thing that's been going through my mind in like the, you know, 15 hours since this happened or whatever, is Trump just saying, who built the cages? Who built the cages? Who built the cages? And Biden's response there of, listen, we weren't uh, separating children at the border. Like that, we're from their families at the border. Like this was was not our policy. You know, it did happen occasionally during the Obama administration. It was not a concerted effort. And like, that's the one thing that's really been sticking with me. Yeah, I feel like Trump was going to seem from himself rather uh, by the format, because the big takeaway, I think, from a lot of people from the first debate was just 
how aggressive he was and the constant interrupting of Joe Biden. And I don't really remember anything he said in that first debate, but I certainly remember the ways in which he said it. And having the threat of the mute button and having to be a bit more subdued and dialed back uh, is led to, I think, clearly him and his people thinking they did a lot better in the second debate. He just did a press conference that we were watching before we started recording this, and he just looked in high spirits. He clearly thinks he did a lot better this second time around. And any thoughts on Kristen Welker's performance as moderator? Oh, she was great. I I think she was one of the best debate moderators that I've seen in a very long time, certainly of this cycle. She had obviously uh, the help of those mics being muted for a lot of those questions um, and certainly like some preparation and seeing the shit show that had happened in the prior debates. Um, but her questions were excellent and she just, uh, she really let them stick on topics where it made sense to that COVID section went on for a much longer time. Whereas in like the last debate, it was, what about the coronavirus? Okay, we have to move on. You know, she really let things land and uh, let them talk through stuff. It was great. So I'm kind of an outlier in that I like the more aggressive moderators, um, but I also tend to think that it's a completely impossible job. Donald Trump kind of breaks the debate format. He'll throw out 15 things that are demonstrably false in 20 seconds, and then the debate moderator has to say, okay, well, Joe Biden, your response. And which doesn't really feel sufficient to me, but also what can you do? There's too much to try to push back on on fact check in real time. That would become the whole uh, event. So uh, yeah, I I don't, I, as much as it has me sort of pulling my hair out while it's happening at times, I don't have any solution for it. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Right. Especially since the campaigns have so much power over like what the rules of the debate actually look like. Um, One thing that they couldn't push back on, though, was the Commission on Presidential Debates uh, adding the fancy new toy, the mute button. Uh, Do you think it was deployed appropriately? And will we need it still in future debates post-Trump, whenever that may be? I loved the mute button. I think we should absolutely have it in the future. I mean, it was it was deployed sparingly, right? They each got their two minutes, and then after that, if they needed to say that's not true, go back and forth, they certainly could do that. It just made everything feel tighter and less insane. Do I think we will need it in future debates? I mean, I think that, like, Trump has so changed the Republican Party that, like, the next Republican presidential candidates, certainly there will be several Trump types, maybe even one of his own children. So, yeah, probably we're going to need to keep doing that. Well, even if you never use it once, the threat of the mute button is so effective because it's very embarrassing to be cut off mid-sentence or to be seen as the person who has to be repeatedly silenced that I don't know if they'll need to use it in future debates, but just having it on hand can make a world of difference. Paul, you mentioned how you wanted uh, more aggressive moderation in the future. The mute button wasn't manned by uh, Kristen Welker of NBC. It was manned by the Presidential Commission for Debates. Do you think it would have made a difference if she'd been the one in control of it instead of uh, the commission? Yeah, I don't. I mean, this is a TV debate. I don't know why it wasn't a huge red button (laughs) with a finger hovering over it. That's what I would have done. Because then I think that the president would have started attacking Kristen Welker, a woman of color on live TV in a way that no one wanted. Then he gets muted. (laughs) (laughs) You can look them in the eye. If they they start running over their time, you start inching your finger towards that button. And that's a signal they got to shut up. 
So by now we know Trump's strategy heading into these debates, uh, shout so many lies throughout his answers that there's no possible way to correct every single one. Here's CNN's Daniel Dale on that process this time around. Well, if President Trump was better behaved tonight, but he lied more. Occasionally you're like, oh, that's wrong. With Trump, you're like that I Love Lucy episode in The Chocolate Factory. You know, you don't know uh, which one to pick up because there's just so much. And so again, with this president, we just see a constant barrage incessantly of false or misleading stuff. Given that we know this will happen, is there a way to combat the misinformation in real time? They've tried the moderators fact-checking him as he speaks, but that's had mixed results. I genuinely don't think there is a way to do it. Uh, Trump really has broken this format. I mean, I could have spent an hour writing several hundred words about sort of breaking down what he said about healthcare, which contained a lot of very deep mistruths, you know, off the top of my head, saying he directed his people to run the Obamacare markets as well as they can, even though he doesn't uh, believe in them. His administration's clear policy, which they've been fairly effective at for the last four years, has been to undermine the Obamacare markets every way they can legally, up to and including trying to get them tossed out entirely in court. So he throws all of these things together. He spoke for probably 45 seconds on healthcare, something like that. And it would have taken me ages to put together a piece breaking down all the ways that what he said was false, which I don't think anyone would have read because there's just too much too fast. I don't see an answer for it. He really has gamed the system this way. Yeah, it's just the velocity of it. But also, I mean, the way that he lies is in very short, easy to understand sound bites. And if you don't know the long history of the truth behind it, it takes, you know, five minutes to knock down every one of his like five second clips. And most people are just going to be there for that five seconds. You'd spend the whole debate correcting him. So I actually have been thinking about this, too. And one of the things that I came up with was the idea of actually like redoing the format so that there had a whole section in there with just questions with factual answers. Like, what is the trade deficit with China right now. Do you think that that's something that campaigns in the future would ever go for? Or would they be like, no, we refuse to actually be asked actual real solid questions during this debate. We're not debating the moderator. They would never in a million years agree to something like that. It is their worst nightmare. I mean, you can say whatever you want about a candidate that you can have two politicians up there saying whatever they want about each other. There is nothing they fear more than being asked a question that sounds easy that they don't know the answer to because you can't spin that. The Joni Ernst nightmare. Yes, exactly. I don't know what else happened in that debate, but I know that she does not know the price of the cultural goods from her state. And that is something that they would fight tooth and nail to uh, avoid. Yeah, for it's sure. like Rick Perry forgetting which departments of the federal government he would get rid of on stage. Like, <laughs> they're just not going to go for that. And also, it's more about like their performance versus the other guy and like who looks more crazy. They don't actually want to get out information that's not really what the debate is for. You know, at, at a certain point, the idea behind these debates is they're not supposed to be a quiz show. It's supposed to be having two people debate policy and lay out their competing platforms for what they would do, which is just a fundamentally different thing than answering factual questions. So I do like the idea of maybe peppering more. And I think you could certainly there's certainly room for that. But also, you know, I don't think I would want these debates to turn into a quiz show. OK, so this is off topic, but we got to ask. 
what is going on with Mitch McConnell's hand. For those that are not aware, the Senate majority leader's hand is basically one giant bruise. But he told reporters yesterday, everything is just fine. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I've asked <laughs> I've asked Mitch McConnell's office multiple times what's going on with his hand, and I have gotten no response. Yeah, so there was this photo. He was reaching down to get a mask. His hand looks like a purpley color. It's got a Band-Aid on it. Gosh, that was earlier this week. And then yesterday, it's still kind of discolored, but not as dark. We have absolutely no idea what's going on with his hand. There's also a photo where it appears like there's a little bit of bruising on his face, but of course, He's actually been wearing a mask quite a bit, so that's been less visible recently. Uh, No one seems to know, and they do not seem to want to answer. Well, I mean, I think there's a a fairly obvious explanation that we don't want to talk about, but it's that the ghost of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has cursed him. Oh, my gosh. First, she gave everyone COVID at the White House, and now she's given Mitch McConnell the plague. What, what's the third plague then? I mean, that's two down. I'm sure she's got to have three up her judicial row. I up check there. the weather report for frogs every day. <laughs> so we'll see. I'm going to start checking too. Thank you for that tip, Paul. Sarah, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Great talking with you. That's it for today. Join us Monday when we're joined by Cal Penn to talk about his show, Cal Penn Approves This Message. And remember, if someone offers you $14 million to do something that you're good at but tired of doing, well, that's a choice between you and your bank account. Godspeed. News O'Clock is produced by Dan Bauza, Alan Haberchak, Julia Karen, Rosemary Minkler, and Erica Nedanin. Special thanks to Tracy Ayers, Mangesh Hatikater, Samantha Hinnick, Patrick McMiniman, and Tommy Wesley. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Open to all teams and players, the NFL's Inspire Change Initiative acknowledges the ways that systemic racism contributes to barriers to opportunity and equality and focuses on ongoing efforts on creating progress in the areas of education, economic advancement, community and police relations, and criminal justice reform. To learn more about the NFL's commitment to ensuring a more equal and just future, text NFLIC to 635635. It takes all of us to advance social justice. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.